just going to start by asking, are there any um, youngest siblings here? Any? Yeah. Hi. Same. Um, and, and as we like to call ourselves, favorite siblings. Um, if you're in that boat, then I'm sure you'll remember a, a, a traumatic childhood experience that we all share, where the eldest sibling organizes a game of hide and seek. And, 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 and you go off and you find an amazing hiding place and then a few minutes go by and you start to think, surely I, I must have won by now. And then a bit later you start to wonder, oh, I wonder if they've kind of forgotten about me. And then about half an hour later, the, the penny finally drops. There never was a game of hide and seek, was there? <laughs> they just wanted to get rid of me. And I just want to say, shame on you older siblings <laughs> for doing that. And shame on you middle siblings for going along with it. Um, the, a while ago, I came across this story of kind of like a mega version of that. Um, there's this guy coming up on the screen. His name is um, Hiru Onoda. He was a, a Japanese soldier in the Second World War, and he was trained in the Imperial Army's uh, Futamata class, um, which is basically like your SAS, jungle warfare, hardcore kind of commando thing. And um, Christmas 1944, he was sent to this place called Lubang Island in the Philippines, with strict orders to, to defend the island, and under no circumstances was he to surrender. He was told, we'll come and get you, um, so just keep fighting. And um, the next year, in 1945, the war ended, but nobody went to get him. Um, and incredibly, he continued to defend it for 29 years. Now, before you feel too sorry for him, um, bear in mind that people did know he was there and they did try and help him. A year later, the Allied forces got the Japanese army to drop leaflets explaining the war is over, it's time to surrender. Um, they, they, later on, they dropped photos of his family and letters from them. Um, they even flew over the jungle in a helicopter calling his name over a tannoy. But all these things, he just thought it was, it was the Allies um, trying to trick him. And so um, he wouldn't, he just went into hiding um, or, or, or responded with hostility. And it, it took, eventually, his, his long-retired commanding officer had to put on his uniform, fly out there, track him down in the jungle, and formally relieve him of duty. And finally, he surrendered, weeping as he turned over his sword um, and his rifle. Back in Japan, he was hailed as a national hero. Um, but, but for me... This story leaves me feeling mostly sad that he wasted so many years essentially imprisoned on, on an island, um, essentially wrestling with his thoughts, wondering if, if actually the battle was over, wondering if you know, a life of freedom and liberty was available to him, if he could only find himself able to surrender. And um, it's this word surrender and the topic of surrender that I wanted to look at this morning. Um, one of the things that I'm involved here in the church with is, is baptisms. And every time we organize a baptism here, we find ourselves in conversations with people who are kind of new to faith, um, asking similar questions, but, but often essentially the same question, am I ready to get baptized? And they might say stuff like, you know, I think I'm a Christian, and, um, you know, somebody prayed for me once, and I, and I had this amazing uh, experience where I just knew God was real. Or they might say, when I come here and worship, there's a connection that's just so tangible. Um, they might say, I really, you know, I belong here in the church. I'm so part of the church family. Or when I read the Bible, I just, I'm convinced that it's real. But they also might say, but I still have doubts. 
and um, there's still parts of my life that I feel I need to sort out, and, and I'm not really sure whether I'm ready to commit. And, and some of you here this morning, you might be in a similar place to that right now. You've yet to decide if this is what you want for your life. And you're asking essentially that same question, am I actually a Christian? And um, when we get asked that at the baptism meetings, the, thing, the way we always answer that question is, is with another question by saying, well, have you given your life to Jesus? Um, have you surrendered to him as your Lord and your Savior? And that's what we're going to focus on for the next few minutes. And I believe that that, that that phrase is as relevant to those of us who've been following Jesus for 90 years as it is to those who've been following Jesus for 90 seconds. Because it prompts similar questions to those of us who've been around for a while too. For example, it prompts us to, to ask, did you wake up this morning and, and surrender your life afresh to Jesus? Did you remind yourself that he is your Lord? Did you remind yourself that he is your saviour? And um, hopefully we're going to get a chance to do that together. So we're going to look at the two aspects, surrendering to him as Lord and then as saviour. So first, I surrender to my Lord. And I'm going to start with a bit of complicated theology here. Okay, this is, this is, this is big, so apologies in advance. Here it comes. God is God and we're not. Now, <laughs> I don't know if that's news to anybody here. You're like, whoa. Um, but if you look at the, if you look at the Bible... Um, this is obvious on every single page. God, uh, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, three in one in unity, is God on every page. And so, you know, right from the start, God's in charge. He's the one creating the universe and generally being awesome, like in the literal sense of the word. And we're the created ones living lives that worship him. Now, that's not to say that we aren't described as special The Bible tells us that we are something spectacularly special and unique because because in all in creation, we were made with this special purpose of of knowing God and enjoying relationship with him and also enjoying relationships with each other that reflect his love. We were built uniquely in his image to be little reflections of him and light up the whole world. But we were built as reflections none. The less. We are the created ones, not the creator. God is God and we're not. And I know, you know, it sounds so obvious that we laugh at it, don't we? But, but from the word go, humanity has always struggled with that notion. You know, if you go right back to the start of the Bible, to Adam and Eve, God told them, um, you know, do this, do that, but, but there's this fruit that I don't want you to eat. It's forbidden. And they decided, well, actually, we know best. And they ate it anyway. And the effects of that rebellion are still at large in every human heart around the world. Each of us wrestle with this sense in our heart that that actually we are the one kind of at the center of the universe, that that we know best because we're special. Somebody once termed it as as a bit of a God complex. Um, And I I know, know nobody would probably admit to having a God complex, obviously, but we all know people who have got a God complex, don't we? And, and of course, there's so much in our culture. We get bombarded um, with messages from adverts, things like that, that feed our ego and tell us that actually, yeah, we are that important, that we can have what we want, that it is all about us. And, and a lot of the role models in our culture as well, um, they aren't exactly humble, are they? 
Um, one example, I'm going to highlight one person that I think probably has got a bit of a God complex, is the, um, the um, rapper Kanye West. Okay? Now, he, if his music is amazing, um, but even more amazing are some of the things that he has to say about himself. This is Kanye. He says, I am the number one most impactful artist of our generation. I am Shakespeare in the flesh. I, I mean, Shakespeare was in the flesh too, but Walt Disney, Nike, Google. Um, when I think of competition, it's like I try to create against the past. I think about Michelangelo and Picasso, you know, the pyramids. Uh, <laughs> my greatest pain in life is that I will never be able to see myself live. And uh, <laughs> whilst we might not all have the same sense of, of self-importance that Kanye has, I think there's, there is a little bit of it in all of us. Um, I've got a little girl, she's five years old. And this summer, we went to a camp called New Wine in the summer. It was brilliant. And, and one day, she was playing in, in, like, with, all, with some friends, and it got to sort of bedtime. And Abby called and said, it's time to come in, put your pajamas on. And she said, Mum, you can't make me come in while all those guys are out there still playing. It's just not fair on them. <laughs> and I think, I think it's fair to say, you know, we all think we're a bit special. And although... These are sort of slightly funny examples of, it's this same self-centeredness that left unchecked has caused an awful lot of pain and suffering around the world, hasn't it? Because it's a pretty powerful thing, that kind of worldview that revolves around ourselves. It's always thirsty for us to be served. And I think, I believe, that it can only really be quenched and reversed by taking a step of surrender and saying, actually, it's not about me. It's about him. I surrender to my Lord. And that word Lord, um, it's, we sing it in our songs, we say it in our prayers. You hear that word Lord, you know, an awful lot around church, don't you? But I, I think it's, it's easier to say it, to call him Lord, than it is to actually live as though he is Lord in reality. Um, one of the most challenging questions that Jesus asked, I think, in the Bible is this one in Luke's Gospel, chapter 6, verse 46. He asked the crowd, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? And I think that's a question that is, is relevant to everybody who's looking to follow him. As I look back over the last few days, the last couple of weeks in my life, I know that it's a question that he would ask of me. Because when I decided to, to surrender my life to Jesus, part of that was acknowledging, you know, you're in charge you're the king, I live in your kingdom, I'm a citizen there, and so I'm going to trust in your suggestions of how to live and, and, and trust that that's best for me. And so, and so when I did that, when I chose him as Lord, this book, the Bible, became the plumb line of my life. But the problem was that although I decided to choose this as the overall law of my life, um, here in the sort of local province, of, of John Bodley in my sort of local jurisdiction. I, at the same time, I started to draft a few bylaws um, that, that, that kind of I felt I could put into play in certain mitigating situations. In fact, to illustrate that, um, I've got a little book here called Bodder's Bylaws, okay? <laughs> and, um, and, and the problem is that, that sometimes these supersede this in the jurisdiction of me. So, for example, you know, the Bible says love your neighbor, doesn't it? That's pretty, pretty straightforward. But over here in the bylaws, the get out clause, 612, um, 
The requirement to love thy neighbor may be waived without prejudice where neighbors exhibit conduct outside the scope of reasonable neighborly behavior. <laughs> Behaviors include, but are not limited to, parking their vehicle outside your house, <laughs> putting up Christmas decorations before December, or looking at you a bit funny in the street. That's pretty useful. Or for example, um, over here, this book says, honor your mother and father. Um, but again, I've got a, a get out clause over here, 215A. The biblical command to honor your parents does not apply to telephone communications with siblings concerning Christmas logistics. So you've got a get out there. And you know, maybe you haven't got a book, um, but maybe you do this too. You know, this book says be patient and be kind, but you think, on the other hand, unless you're on the phone to a, to a customer services person. Or this one might say, be generous with what you have and, 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 and contribute uh, financially to the church regularly. But, but on the other hand, you might think, unless, you know, that three-piece suite that we've been after is in, is in a, a limited time sale. And if we don't get it this month, we never will. So let's just be generous next month. This one might say, don't look at women lustfully. In fact, it does say that. Um, on, <laughs> on, the, on, the, on the other hand, though, you might think, unless I'm alone and on the internet and nobody's watching. And really, in an essence, that's what, that's what sin is. Sin is when these two clash, choosing this over this is a sin. It's essentially doing things our way when it conflicts with God's way. And the thing is, we all do this, don't we? You know, if, if you're relatively new here, I know that church can be, you know, a slightly intimidating place to come because everybody looks so squeaky clean as though they've never done anything wrong in their life, especially the people that sit near the front. <laughs> and we love you, we love you at the front. Um, but the truth is, we're all in the same boat here. Um, the message translation, a uh, contemporary translation of the Bible, puts it far better than I ever could. It says, basically, all of us, whether we're insiders or outsiders, start out in identical conditions, which is to say, we all start out as sinners. Scripture leaves no doubt about it. There's nobody living right, not even one. Nobody knows the score, nobody alert for God. They've all taken a wrong turn. They've all wandered down blind alleys. And that's why Jesus asks us, why do you call me Lord and not do what I tell you? And, you know, immediately after he asked that question, he explained why this is a problem. He said, um, I'll show you what he is like. This is verse 47 of chapter 6. He who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice. He is like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on a rock. And when the flood came, the torrent struck that house and couldn't shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. And the moment the torrent struck that house, its destruction was complete. See, these bylaws are not that reliable. Jesus explained, if you build your life solely on that foundation, eventually it's gonna come tumbling down. And, and, and we see this, we all know folks, don't we, who, who, who are always, they're so committed, do you know people who are so committed to doing things their way that they will make decisions where the only person who can't see it's a bad decision is them. And they go through life just making the same mistakes over and over again. You know, like that friend that we all have who seems to have just broken up with yet another lousy partner. And you think, wow, they really do know how to pick them, don't they? Or, or a family member who 
Every time they get their finances sorted out, they go and commit to something silly again and they're back to square one. Or a friend at work who is such a workaholic that they work and work and work to the point where stress um, makes them ill and they have to stop and then they just start the whole process again. Going through life, going in circles, building and rebuilding on this same shoddy foundation of I know best. And maybe there's something in that that is familiar with your life. And if that's you, perhaps Jesus is using today to say, you know, why don't you stop trying to build on that and build on this instead? But know that it has to mean surrendering the lot. One of the things that we say in those baptism meetings that I mentioned before, a little phrase, is if he isn't Lord at all, then he isn't Lord at all. If he isn't Lord of all, then he isn't Lord at all. And you you might have heard that before. I don't know who said it first. But I love the way that phrase prompts the questions. Are there areas of our lives that we haven't yet handed over to Jesus? Am I sort of surrendering to him, but still holding something behind my back? Because, of course, that's not really surrendering, is it? You know, if you, by the way, if you're in America and you get pulled over by the police, do this, don't do this, because they'll sort of shoot you, won't they? Because that's not surrendering. And so, whatever it is for you, maybe it's, um, you know, your anger, or maybe it's some aspect of your finances, maybe it's a particular relationship, maybe it's a habit, or an addiction, or a cynical attitude, whatever it is that you're holding back, are you ready to hand it over to him today, and surrender and say, I surrender to my Lord? So that's the first step. The second one is to surrender to our Lord and Savior. And this one's a bit of a funny one because, you know, if you're to ask most people in life, do you feel like you need saving? I guess you'd get mixed responses to that question, wouldn't you? There might be some people like, yes, I need somebody to come and rescue me from my life. But there are a lot of folks, I guess, who would also say, no, I don't feel like I, like I do need saving or rescuing. Um, just a moment ago, you know, when I was saying about how building your life on this foundation is such a bad idea. You might have been thinking, well, it's working pretty well for me as a foundation and life's good, you know? And it might be that that, that actually you've got a good job and you've got nice family and friends and you're generally happy. And and, and I say, yeah, but choosing this over this is is a sin. And you think, well, if that's a sin, like I don't see what the big deal is because certainly I don't see how it's something that I would need saving from. But the thing is, whilst sin might not be a big deal to us, it turns out that it is a big deal to him. Because every time we choose our way over his way, it's, it undermines him as Lord. It's a, it's a direct rejection of him. And the Bible talks about how this works in a whole bunch of places. Um, but here's just an example from Isaiah chapter 59. It says, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he doesn't hear. When we choose this way over that way, it's like we're pushing him away from us, rebelling against God. But the thing is, with God, when you push against him and try and push him away, it's a bit like pushing against an island when you're sat on a raft. The only thing that moves is you. When we sin, we push ourselves away from God and we cast ourselves adrift. Or like it says in the passage, we put a separation, 
a barrier between him and us that stops us from relating. If you feel a bit distant from God at the moment, perhaps that's why. Perhaps there's some kind of sin in your life that you've yet to really tackle. And to be separated from Jesus, the source of all life in the universe, it can't be a good thing, can it? Um, in fact, Romans in the Bible, chapter 6, 23, kind of works this out rather bluntly to its conclusion by saying the wages of sin is death. In other words, the consequence of sin is death. Because to be separated from, from him who is the source of life is to be separated from life itself. And you might think, wow, that sounds a bit harsh. Really? Surely a, a few sins here and there couldn't be that big a deal. And I know that's the way that I think I used to look at it. Um, I used to, I think there was a point in my life where I used to look at ex- life as though it was a big entrance exam for heaven, basically, um, where I thought, I'm probably not heading for like an A star or a first, but hopefully I'm just going to get a pass mark, probably a B plus or, or a 2-1 or something like that. But the thing was, when I, when I actually read this book, I realized that's not the way it works necessarily. And if that's the way that you approach life, then you need to know that the pass mark is 100% to live a life that's good enough for Jesus to accept us purely on our own merit, it has to be a perfect life because to be compatible with a perfect God, you need to be perfect. And the problem, of course, is that once we've made a mistake, which we all have, no no amount of good decisions after that can put it back to 100%. And, And I think when I sort of figured that out from reading that book, I realized perhaps I do need saving here. And the amazing good news is that the only one who's actually capable of saving us is also ready and willing to save us. Um, That slightly scary verse that I read um, a few moments ago in Isaiah about how our sins separate separate him from us. Um, If you read the verse before, it says, behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. When we reach that point, of surrendering to him, the amazing news is that what we get from God is not punishment or condemnation, but an amazing gift of zero cost, but infinite worth of forgiveness and salvation and access to permanent life. The Romans verse that I started earlier, 6.23, is completed by saying, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And, and the Bible famously declares what that free gift is in John's Gospel, chapter three, verse 16, that says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus came to earth to, to reach out and rescue us. When we cast ourselves adrift, he swam out into the ocean to draw us back to himself. But it was a rescue that cost him his life. He had to choose to die on a cross because in order to save us, he had to take the punishment for our sins, for the sins of the world, because we simply can't bear it ourselves. Whatever we've done to drive a wedge between us and him, he's overcome that at whatever cost. 
And that's how, why he faced death on a cross. And that opened up the potential for us to enjoy a relationship with him, a life of hope and purpose and joy and fulfillment from today until forever. And to receive it, we only need to surrender to him and acknowledge, you're my Lord and I need saving. And it's the most amazing news that people are responding to all around the world every single day. Um, you know, just last week here on Sunday, um, we had some folks decide to give their life to Jesus. We're doing an alpha course at the moment where the last couple of weeks there's been people giving their life to Jesus there. In fact, yesterday, um, the Healing on the Streets team were in Market Square and um, a couple of people who went out, it was their first time on the team, and they started um, chatting to this, this couple of guys and then one of them in particular got chatting to them during a rain um, downpour in, in a doorway. And um, he offered, he said, is there anything that you need to pray about? And they, they, there was some things that they wanted to, to ask for some prayer about because, you know, they're having a bad chat about it. And after he prayed for one of these guys, he said, that felt good. Um, and uh, the guy on the team explains, well, that was probably the Holy Spirit. Um, and it kind of led into more of a conversation where he ended up basically saying all the stuff that I've just said, really, about Jesus and the cross. And he, and he got to the point where he said, actually, um, this is available to you today, um, if you want. And um, both of them gave their life to Jesus yesterday. Isn't that cool? But, yeah. But, but you know, um, just last week as well, though, on our Alpha table, um, there, was, there was one lady who, who we were talking about this kind of stuff. And she had a question. She said, well, do you know, I don't know if I could believe that yet. Um, but certainly, this idea that all the stuff that I've done um, could be paid for, could be put right. That is an appealing idea. But the next question that came on the table was, yeah, but why, why did he have to die to solve that problem? And what difference does a person dying make anyway? And that's one of those moments in Alpha sort of where you're like, good question. <laughs> what does everybody else think? Um, but... <laughs> But I think, you know, you can go a long way to answering those questions by pointing out that this wasn't just a man dying. Um, if, if you read the account in Matthew's Gospel, this is what happened immediately after Jesus died. Um, the very next thing that happened. Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were also opened, and many bodies of the saints who'd fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection they went into the holy city and appeared to many and when the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place they were filled with awe and they said truly this was the son of God now that's not what happens when just ordinary people die is it that is an explosion of power Think about that, you know, like the, 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 the earth shook, the rocks split apart. Literally dead people woke up from their graves. Um, the curtain, it, we read, was in the temple was torn in two. And that at the time, um, it would have been more symbolic than saying the Berlin Wall came tumbling down because that curtain was so special and everybody knew what it did. It separated off um, this place in the temple called the Holy of Holies where the presence of God dwelt and people just couldn't go. It separated that off from where everybody else was. And so in tearing that barrier apart, Jesus was tearing apart the barrier of sin that has the potential to separate humanity from God 
And so, you know, if you personally live with doubts that God could really forgive you, think about the power of that moment. As the Roman soldier realized, this wasn't just a man being crucified, this was God's own son laying down his life. And that is a big deal. So if you're the kind of person who'd say, I'm beyond saving, the stuff I've done. The thing is, Jesus came um, for people not who thought they were perfect, but people who knew that they weren't. And he told us that. He said, it isn't the healthy that need a doctor. And I think this is something that, that we probably all need reminding of from time to time because many of us, even those who've, of us who've been following Jesus for a long time, can struggle with this notion that there's this bad sin that we did or this persistent sin in our life that somehow is counting against us, that makes us unforgivable in some way. And we go through life bearing this burden of anxiety and guilt that we've done something that's just too bad. This nagging feeling that our wrongdoings are gonna come back to bite us, that we've racked up a bill that we can't afford to pay. And of course, that's a horrible feeling. Um, bit of a story, a, a, a couple of years ago, a couple of friends of mine visited from London and we went out for a meal and my trendy London friend gets off the train and he's like, oh, I know where to eat in Nottingham. There's this place where I kind of, I'm, I'm a friend of a friend of the manager. And so we head off there and he, he strides in, introduces himself to the manager who kind of comes over and has been very nice and sits us down. And um, I, I look at the prices on the menu, break out into a cold sweat because this is expensive. And um, my friend's like, oh, help us here. We can't really choose what to have. And the manager's like, tell you what, why don't I just bring out a range of dishes that I think you'll like. And, uh, and he's like, and could you do that with the wine? Yeah, yeah, I'll just bring out what, some wine that I think you'll like. And off he goes. And my friends are like, isn't he nice? And I'm like, yes, of course he is. We're three blank checks sat in his restaurant. <laughs> and um, the food starts coming and coming. And it is admittedly absolutely amazing. Um, you're all going to ask me what the restaurant is later. Uh, yeah, I won't say now. Um, but I couldn't really enjoy the food because I knew that I couldn't really afford it. In fact, I don't know how I got the dessert down me, but I just soldiered through. And, <laughs> yeah. Dreading the arrival of the bill until the piece of paper arrived and was placed in the middle of the table with a big, fat zero on it. And it turned out that my friend had done a favor for the manager's brother, and the whole meal was on the house. None of us had known, but the manager's generosity had been genuine. There was nothing to bit pay. The bill that I had feared throughout the whole meal had been paid before I set foot in the restaurant. And can you imagine how much more I would have enjoyed that meal had I known? <laughs> or in the same way, can you imagine how much more Hiru, the soldier at the start, would have enjoyed his life if he'd have realized that the battle was actually over, that a new life of freedom was awaiting him if he could just lay down his defenses and surrender. In the same way, how much more can we enjoy life knowing that Jesus paid the bill and he won the battle before we were even born? His death, his sacrifice was powerful enough to pay for the sins of humanity. And when he rose again on Easter Sunday, his resurrection, he, he proved that. That was the moment 
I think, when he came and he placed the receipt in the hands of humanity and said zero is paid in full. And that's the free gift of grace that he offers each one of us today and every day. He asks us, if you're tired of doing things your way, then why don't you let me be your Lord? Surrender it over to me and I'll, I'll save you, I'll restore you, and I'll give you a hope and a purpose for your life from today until eternity. And this is not something that he forces upon us. You know, he's powerful enough to, if he wanted to, he could make us surrender. Um, and the Bible does say that one day, every knee, will bow, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he's Lord. And that day could be tomorrow, for all we know. But for now, it seems that he'd rather we chose to do that. And he just wastes, waits patiently for us to surrender. He knows that it comes at a cost. He knows that to lay some things down, it, uh, it costs us. To admit that we've made mistakes is painful. And, and I don't know what those costs are for each of us, but he does. And what's more, whatever it costs us surrender, it costs him a lot more. Because he's, uh, he's the king of kings, the wonderful counselor, the prince of peace who, who took off his royal robes and laid it all down. He walked on earth as a fragile man and he purposefully surrendered to Calvary. He was beaten and tortured and executed all so that you and I could be redeemed. He really does know the cost of surrender. So it may be that there's some of you here today um, and it might be that you've been around church for a while but you've never actually done this. You've never actually said, I wanna surrender it all and follow you, Jesus. And it might be that, that God's spirit is stirring your heart to make that step today. And so I think it's an opportunity for you um, but I think it's an opportunity for all of us because whether it's for the first time in our life or whether it's for the thousandth time today, I believe we're all facing the same question. Are you ready to surrender to the Lord and Savior?